0: Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This fall, we're exploring the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and seeing what often happens when God's people seek to rebuild what is broken. It's a book of trial, triumphs, repair, repentance, and renewal. It's our hope that these sermons will draw you more into the life of following God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. God bless.
1: Lord, we're thankful. We're so thankful for your word. Um, sometimes it hits us as strange and odd and uh, archaic Um But Lord, so often you use those words that were written so long ago to be fresh in our lives. And we pray that you'd do that even now. Lord, that you'd meet us in new and fresh and alive ways through these texts. And that you'd draw us into this community of thanks, of praise, a singing from the, the corners around Jerusalem of the great work that you've done. A lifting our voices with Anna long ago. Who's filled with joy and gave thanks and praise to you, Lord? We pray, Lord, that you would meet us and that you would make us into a community of thanks. Hear our prayers now. Amen. Okay, quiz time. What year did Harrisburg have its population peak? These are great questions. These are great guesses. 1950? Harry got it. 1950. Does anyone know what that uh, population peak was? No, no. Just think city limits. 70, that's closer. It was 90,000. 90,000. So 1950, Harrisburg had its peak of 90,000 people within the city limits. Um, that was actually about the exact same time that this church had its peak in the mid-50s in terms of its membership. Anyone know uh, approximately what our church's membership peaked at in the 1950s? I'm looking at Dottie over there. Dottie? 15. It was 1,200. It was cl- close to that. About 1,200 people were part of Second Church in the 1950s. They remembers. members. Um, Maybe some of you know this. What neighborhood was the was is considered the first suburb of Harrisburg? Penbrook? Penbrook? No. Stilton, Stilton. Scheibook. That's a good, That's a much closer guess. In the 1880s, the first suburbs of Harrisburg was was called Allison Hill. Um, in 1886, you could actually take a horse-drawn trolley from Allison Hill to work in the city of Harrisburg. Um, You can can actually see some of the glories. How many people have walked through the cemetery, uh, the the Harrisburg cemetery? It's beautiful, 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 and you can see how ornate and large some of the tombstones were from that time period. Mostly it was developed right after the Civil War, and there's many Civil War, of course, um, burials there. Many of you know that there were actually trolleys that kind of began actually, you know, around the turn of the century to take people to the other near suburbs, namely up near Camp Curtin (laughs) and Italian Lake. Those were sort of the new suburbs that were developed once the trolley got going running up 6th Avenue and 2nd Street. Did anybody else see when they were digging up 2nd Street to make it two, two lanes that you could see some of the trolley tracks occasionally? That's the old trolley tracks that would take you out from the city up to the suburbs of Italian Lake. Um, It really is sort of laughable to think that those were the suburbs of the time, but that's true. Um, Many of you know that in the 19-teens and the 1920s, there was the City Beautiful movement that took place. And that was actually when Italian Lake was developed. And what's the other neighborhood up past uh, Allison Hill that was developed during that time? Yes, Bellevue. Um, And actually, it was at that same time that a lot of our riverfront park was developed, the sunken gardens were developed in the the teens. And a lot of the the, the city was moving towards saying, okay, people are moving out. How can we intentionally bring some of the beauty of the surrounding uh, places back into the city that had been sort of overcome with industrialization? Um, Capona Festival actually began at that same time. And anyone know what year? You're getting a a history lesson right now. 1916, Capona began, and it was the Capona Club that started the festival for Labor Day. The Capona Club was a boating club, and they wanted to show you some of their boat races out on the river, and so they began the Capona uh, Festival on Labor Day that we still celebrate in our city now. But here's what I'm saying, you know, there was a population peak, and for the most part, that population peak happened all across the country. It was sort of post-World War II, everybody began to have cars after World War II, and they began to move out. Of course, most people know that that that's often called as white flight, but that was sort of just across the board. The entire country began to have automobiles sort of as a norm, and they began to move out after the trolleys and all of that. So here's what happened. The glory of our city, which really had its beautiful peak in the early, you know, 1900 to 1930, began to sort of fade away. And by 1950, that had the peak population. And every single year from 1950 to 2020, we had a population decline. Every single year, for 70 years, our city actually lost some of its population. Um, Some of you might know that in 1920, Harrisburg was actually considered the 92nd largest city in the country. Now Harrisburg, think only Harrisburg proper, sits at 797th. But the metro area is actually still at 97th, so it's actually pretty similar still, considering that, you know, people just kind of spread out. We're about the same in terms of population across the country. Um, I'm just going to give you a couple more statistics. In 2010, there was one building permit for a single-family occupancy issued in our city. One in 2010. Um, So um, you can imagine that in 2020, when we learned that the Harrisburg population increased by 1.1%. How thrilled were we? (laughs) We were thrilled. Lawrence Binda, of course, wrote about it in the Berg, as he does. Um, But also, when the empty lots around our city have been starting to be bought up by developers and said, "You know, we're going to think creatively about how to sort of build in this little space right here and these empty lots and that empty lots," it's frankly, it's exciting. It's wonderful. I mean, my heart rejoices when I hear about people building up empty lots or buying empty lots with the prospect of building. It's a day to celebrate. Now, that's basically what's happening in Nehemiah 11 and 12. I just gave you the Nehemiah 11 and 12. No, really, truly, Nehemiah 11 and 12 are about the repopulation of a city whose, whose glory was long gone. It was, a, it was a day long ago when Jerusalem was full. And so it's a repopulation story, but it, it moves just from talking about repopulation to being a chapter of thanksgiving. And of course it does. Okay, but repopulation is about places and people, right? That's basically what we talk about when we talk about repopulation. We're talking about a place and people being there. And so that's what I want us to look at first, okay, the the places and the people. So first, think with me about this place. Um, Jed, this is the last time I think that I'm ever going to have you read so many names. But do you know that every, every week that we've had just a ton of names read, it's been Jed that's done it? So thank you for doing that. Jed read from the second half of chapter 12, and quite honestly, I wasn't sure exactly how to teach these two chapters together, even though they completely go together in terms of what we should read, because they're both very long, and if you read all of 11, you would have really felt like there were just so many names. But here's how chapter 11 begins, okay? Chapter 11 begins with this. These are the first couple verses. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Um. Okay, I think it's kind of wild to think that here at the sort of end of the book of Nehemiah, um, after you know they've put all this work into the city of Jerusalem. After, after all the work has sort of been done, you know, and they've celebrated the fact that the walls are up, it's at this point where they're like, well, we got to get people to live here now. <laughs> who's going who's gonna to volunteer to live in the city that we've just put so much work into? And what they did is it says they actually cast lots. They drew straws. Well, you're living in the city. <laughs> well, okay, you can live up, you know, in Perry County. That's kind of what they're doing. And I mean, literally, that's what's happening in the beginning of chapter 11. They're casting lots, and they're saying, one in ten people need to populate this city, and the rest of you can live in, around about it, okay? Um, and uh, here's the thing. You have to understand the history of Jerusalem to understand this passage, okay? Um, here in this passage, we're talking about the year 445, is the best guess for when the book of Nehemiah takes place, 445 BC. Um, and uh, Jerusalem, j- back in the day, just like it is today, has, had been a hotly contested city. It had been fought over a lot. And, it, you know, there, I mean, it had really been decimated over all these years of being passed around from superpower to superpower. Here's the thing, all over the Bible, and I think this is sort of the, the thing that you get most of all when you read the scriptures, is you think Jerusalem is just this amazing, beautiful city. I mean, it's part of the pictures of the new heavens and the new earth in the book of Revelation. It's Zion, where God himself dwells. It's called the city of David. And I think for the most part, we go, man, Jerusalem. Uh, I mean, you know, the Psalms, the, the Psalms themselves say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Right? How we long to be in you. It's the place where God dwells. It's just this great city. But you have got to have in your mind that at the time of Nehemiah, the glory days were long past. We're not talking about 1950. Okay, this is 445 BC. David reigned from 1010 BC to 970 BC. That's a long time ago from Nehemiah. Solomon, who really, you know, built the temple in all of its glory, was from 970 to 931. We're talking about 445 BC, you know, 500 years later. And over those, particularly the previous 300 years before Nehemiah, what had basically happened is that Jerusalem had just been sacked again and again. The Assyrians, of course, came and they took the 10 northern tribes away. But they were also just the superpower of the region, right? I mean, you know, Israel was tiny, tiny, tiny at that point. And so after the Assyrians, of course, the Babylonians came. And actually, it's at the time of the Babylonians when Jerusalem was really raised to the ground and the temple was destroyed and the, the wall was eventually destroyed. And Jerusalem was just put to ruins. But you've got to think that at the point of this uh, book, 445, it had been literally 300 years of just sort of it, be, it slowly, you know, decreasing and decreasing and decreasing in power. And then after the Babylonians, the Persian Empire, um, happened. And thank God for the Persians, really, because the Persians were actually known as being very reasonable and kind, particularly for these small groups of people that lived throughout their empire. And so they were very tolerant in, of these various people, of their religions and in their regions. And Cyrus the Great, who founded the Persian empire, he founded it in, in 549. So it wasn't that long after the Babylonian captivity. His son was Darius the and he ruled from 521 to 486. Um, it was actually during the time of Darius I that the temple was beginning to be rebuilt. We could, we could read about that and study that in the book of Ezra. And Zerubbabel was the one who led the rebuilding of the temple. Um, and um, after Darius I came Xerxes, uh, who reigned from 486 to 465. And you can read about Xerxes in, do you know what book he comes up in? Yes, the book of Esther. Okay, so so here, but here it's important that you hear this, that these superpowers that were around Jerusalem and Israel, they were interacting with the story of Israel and God's story with his people. Um, so when you get to Nehemiah uh, chapter 1, what we have is Artaxerxes is the king, right? I mean, that's where we, we begin in Nehemiah chapter 1, way over in the citadel, Susa, with Artaxerxes, and he's, you know, and Nehemiah gets the letter from his brother, and, you know, he goes in chapter 2 to ask the king. But here's what's going on. By that point, this wall has, has actually been completely destroyed for 142 years. And what happens in the ancient world when the walls of a city are completely destroyed? Well, it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like living in a big apartment building. Think about living down at Linden Terrace. I know a few of our, member, our folk live down there, but no one, no one who's here today. If you live down at Linden Terrace and there was no doors to your building, there were no doors into your apartment, what would happen? Well, people would just wander in and they'd probably grab something and take it off. And especially because there's no police around anyway. I mean, pretty much everybody's deserted the city. And so who would ever want to live in Jerusalem? Nobody. Nobody wants to live in Jerusalem at that point. Okay, anybody can get in, anybody can get out. Any, no one's there to protect your stuff. You don't want to live there. Okay, I want us to think again about the history of Harrisburg a little bit. Do um, You know that Pennsylvania was the largest and really most powerful state in the Union during the Civil War. And what uh, city was the capital of Pennsylvania at that time? It's Harrisburg. Oh, it's not tricky. Um, Okay, so Harrisburg was hugely important. And it was also sort of close, of course, to the Confederate States. And just like today, Harrisburg at the time was a transportation hub. And so it was hugely significant in terms of moving things around for the Union, and especially as they went down into the Confederate States. And so, of course, because of that, it was also a strategic city for the Confederate States to come and attack and and have control over. And so, of course, General Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, they actually tried to do this. They tried to do this more than, more than once. They first tried to do this um, during the Maryland Campaign, which ended at the Battle of Antietam. Yeah. Um, and then they tried to do this the second time. that ended, And the second attempt ended at the Battle in Gettysburg. Right, Okay. But here's the thing, not, they did not get all the way up to Harrisburg, but part of, partly why they didn't do that, well, one reason is because actually Camp Curtin was one of the main places where Civil War soldiers went to train. Tens and tens of thousands of people in the, during the Civil War, the, Un, the Union Army, was, were trained just up on 6th Avenue here, right? But the other big reason, actually, is that um, the Union thought pretty creatively of where to, where to put soldiers, you know, in camps. And one of those camps is right across the river in Camp Hill, right That's why, that's what that was. And there's also this actually. Has anybody been to Fort Couch? It's right near, It's right near Negley Park. Yeah. Fort Couch. you can actually still see the you know the, the ground, how it was moved into in a fort-like shape. But so the, so the union was thinking creatively about where to place their soldiers. Okay, all this to say, This is what we have in Jerusalem, right? This city that has largely just been destroyed, and nobody wants to live there because it's super dangerous. And now finally the walls have gotten up, and they're like, okay, we need to populate this place. Who's going to do it? Okay. What we find in the book of Nehemiah is this public works project to rebuild the walls and to care for this great city. I mean, Nehemiah chapter 7 and 4 actually says this. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. And then it says this, and no houses were built. That's, that's Nehemiah chapter 7. So you get another glimpse into this place, uh, that it was great and glorious, but the people were few and there weren't many places to live. Um, but Nehemiah chapter 11 and, they, and chapter 12, they grab onto this idea. And Nehemiah chapter 11 focuses on this place that was once put in a shambles, didn't have any houses, its you know, walls were down, it was in decline for many, many years, but it's beginning to be repopulated. Okay, so first you've got to just understand the place of, of this repopulation, right? The, you're talking about literally hundreds of years of the city of God being in ruins. The second thing we have to talk about when we talk about repopulation, of course, is the people. So really, truly, most of 11 and 12 are just names. It's lots and lots of people. Names. Um, good job, again. That was, that was a challenging read, but you've risen to the occasion on each, each, each time it's been given to you. Um, but I think it's also just really instructive for us that Nehemiah is intent on this idea of listing names. You know, we look at this earlier on in the book right, in chapter 3. This happens later, actually, in chapter 7, right, where there's lots of names being listed. And then here again in chapter 11, there's lots of names. And actually here in chapter 11, um, it's not just the names, but there's also numbers. And when you count them all out, actually, there's about 3,000 people, men, it says specifically, who were to live in Jerusalem, which means that there was about 10,000 people now who were living in this city. When, when you think of women and children, they were living there in Jerusalem, which means given that chapter 11 began in 1 and 2 saying that 1 in 10 lived in Jerusalem, it means that there were about 100,000 people that had moved either back or who were, who were in that area who were seeking to be faithful Jews and worship the Lord. So 100,000 people, at some level, you're supposed to go, wow, this whole repopulation thing is actually happening. Something's actually going on here. Now, um, I think it's really important that we acknowledge that most of the people that are listed in these chapters are not people that any of us have ever heard of. Um, They are listed because they're really important. And it seems like there's a a real intent in Nehemiah to say all of these people and the work that they've done is deeply important to the work of God. But also you need to know that there really are pretty much normal people. they are normal people like you and like me, right? Which means that these are people maybe who moved and who left family and friends elsewhere and said, you know, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to work and I'm going to devote myself to this. It also means that these are people probably that have lots of marital troubles, Um, financial difficulties, uh, the stresses of life. Probably many of these people had been abused in their life, right? And yet they were the ones that showed up and said, I want to devote myself to this work of the Lord. They're the people that have the exact same stories that we do today. These are people that are very normal in many regards, but their names were still written in this book. Um, Some of them were old. Some of them were young. Some of them were single. Some of them were married. Um, We know that most, because this is most of chapter 11 mentions that they were of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and the Levites. So we know sort of that they had that kind of background. Um, And we know also that they had different jobs. We know that a lot of them were Levites, especially that are highlighted in chapter 12 that was read for us. So we know that some of them were priests, but we also know that there were some that were gatekeepers, that were guards. Um, They were storekeepers. You know, I mean, in many ways, like these are just, you know, people that showed up and said, put me in, coach. I, I think I can catch the ball, maybe. Give me a shot. Um, think about this, okay? Most people know at least a couple names from the Bible. Most people know the name Jesus when you talk about the Bible. You're like, okay, it's about Jesus. And some people can list off other names, like Maybe Peter and John, maybe Paul. And if you go to the Old Testament, some people are like, that's where Adam and Eve are and Abraham and Moses and probably King David and Solomon, right? And and maybe if you've been around the church for a little while, you might, if I said, hey, who are a couple of the prophets? You'd be like, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And, you know, like there's these names that you're like, yeah, like the big people, right? Um, But here we have recorded names like this. Bakbukaiah, which was destined to not be very well known. <laughs> Akub, Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, and the sons of Asaph, and Adoniah, the son of Jero- Jeroam, son of Palaliel, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, we know that one, and of Pashur, son of Malchajiah. You know those guys, right? <laughs> right? No, no, you don't know those guys. That's not. You don't know those guys, but they are recorded here, and their participation in the work of the Lord deeply mattered at this time and where they were for this place. Um, here's the thing, okay? If Harrisburg is going to shine, it does matter who our mayor is, right? Wanda Williams will have some effect on that. But we all know that most of what it means is just normal people, like, loving their neighbors and calling each other up and checking on each other and buying from our local stores and eating at our local places and just caring for the city. The normal people are what is going to change any given place. And if Second City Church is going to thrive, it does matter who the pastor is. That's, that has an effect, right? But what really matters is each one of you going, you know what? I... I can make coffee and get cookies out, right? I can show up. You know what? I love thinking creatively about a website. God's given me insight into this, and I'm going to use it to serve this church so that it thrives and it grows and it develops and it's built up. It really is people saying, I'm going to participate. I'm going to get in and get the job done. And, you know, if if we could write it out, it would be like this, right? Like, Eli, son of Jay, (laughs) or Nora, daughter of Jesse, daughter of Michelle, right? I mean, truly, right? Like, who who showed up? Harry, Emma, Peter. I mean, really, truly, this is how the work is always done, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. It is not all about Nehemiah showing up. Of course that's important, right? Of course, it's important to have a minister. and to, I mean, that, that's all important. But the work that happens with the church is just normal people saying, hey, throw me in, coach. <laughs> I'm done sitting on the sidelines. I need to participate and jump in. And I've got this gift that might help in some way. Put me in. And what happens? What happens when this sort of thing takes place? Well, I would suggest to you this, the exact same thing that happens in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 11 and chapter 12. When this sort of repopulation and this this normal people showing up and participating happens, thanksgiving takes place. They become a people of thanks and they give praise to the Lord. That's the end of repopulation here in these chapters, is thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. Um, It's exactly what happened, you know. A couple years ago, when, when we learned that Harrisburg, after 70 years, was in decline, had a year where the population went up. Everybody, obviously, if you love this place, is like, yes! Yes! And that's exactly what happens, right? Hey! Praise the Lord! New people are showing up! Right? Thank God! And this is what actually is full all over in, this, in these two chapters, um, Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 17 says this And Mattaniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zebdi, the son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks, and Bakbukiah, <laughs> and other names. Um, chapter 12, verse 24 and 25 And the chiefs of Levites, Hashab- Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Kadmiel, with their brothers, who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks. According to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. They were always giving thanks. Uh, verse 31 says this, Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south wall and to the dungate. gate. keeps going down, verse 38. The other choir and those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. So both choirs and those who gave thanks stood in the house of God and I and half the officials with me. Here's the picture you're supposed to be getting. Along the south wall, there's an enormous choir with half the people. Along the north wall, there's an enormous choir with half the people. And remember, this wall is about two miles, you know, uh, long. So you have these huge choirs after this, at this repopulation. And what they're doing is they're just singing to each other praise to the Lord. Isn't that awesome? The end of all this repopulation of this place and this building up that's taken place and even the difficulty of saying, okay, I'll move back in. Everybody goes, let's all sing. Let's give thanks to the Lord because he's done this. He's done what none of us could ever imagine could, could, w- would actually happen. The Lord has done it. So the end of all this is praise and a community of thanks, of people that stand up and say, yes, Lord, thank you for what you've done because we would have never done it without you. Um how many of you know the name Sarah Hale? Does that ring a bell to anyone? No? Um, Sarah was born in New Hampshire in 1788 and she was remarkably, remarkably well educated. And she was a great writer. Um, you probably all know the little poem Mary Had a Little Lamb. Okay, that was Sarah Hale. But she also was an editor of a magazine and wrote extensively. And she wrote on all kinds of issues. She wrote about the necessity of having education for men and women. She uh, lobbied for property ownership for men and women. Um, she wrote against slavery um, in you know, the mid-19th century. What she also did, though, is she wrote letters to our presidents. And she was pretty, you know, pretty well-respected, so she could do this. She could write letters to the presidents. And the first uh, president that she wrote to was James K. Polk. He was the president when she wrote her first letter in 1846. But she wrote letters to the next five presidents. So there were six presidents that she wrote letters to. And here's what she said in each one of these. We need a national holiday where we give thanks, where we say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And, she, and, you know, most of the presidents initially were like, we don't want to do that. And then finally, Abraham Lincoln got her letter and he said, let's make it happen. And it was actually right in the middle of the Civil War. And so the first Thanksgiving actually took place, or the declaration of the first Thanksgiving took place in 1863. And Abraham Lincoln declared it a national holiday. Here's what his edict actually said. It said, it has pleased Almighty God to prolong our national life another year defending us with his guardian care against unfriendly designs from abroad and vouchsafing to us in his mercy many and signal victories over the enemy who is of our own household. it has also pleased our Heavenly Father to favor as well our citizens in their homes as our soldiers in their camps and our sailors on the rivers and seas with unusual health. He has largely augmented our free population by emancipation and by immigration, while he has opened to us new sources of wealth and has crowned the labor of our workmen in every department of industry with abundant rewards. Moreover, he has been pleased to animate and inspire our minds and hearts with fortitude, courage, and resolu- resolution sufficient for the great trial of civil war into which we have been brought by our adherents as a nation to the cause of freedom and humanity, and to afford to us reasonable hopes of an ultimate and happy deliverance from all our dangers and afflictions. Now, therefore, I, Abraham Lincoln, president of the United States, do hereby appoint and set apart the, the last Thursday in November next as a day which I desire to be observed by all my fellow citizens, wherever they may be, as a day of thanksgiving and praise to almighty God, the beneficent creator and ruler of the universe. That was Abraham Lincoln. And that, and he was, what does it begin with? He says, the Lord has preserved us. Let's give thanks. And that's exactly what's happening in, in this book. The Lord has brought us together, and let's give thanks. And that's what's happening, right? Every weekend, week out, we come together. Right? We're people that have been shaped by the word. We're people that confess our stories and God's story. We're people that come together and dedicate ourselves to the Lord. But ultimately, we're a people that come together every week and say, thank you, Lord. In your kindness, you've preserved us. In your kindness, you've showed us your love. And most of all, you've given us Jesus himself and his cross and his resurrection. And so we are a people that say, thanks be to God. We praise you. We worship you. We adore you. And so when we're, jo- when we're coming in week in, week out, we're lifting our voices in song and in thanks. What we're doing is we're joining with the choir of Nehemiah long ago, right? And think about this, surrounding the city on the north end and the south end, singing to one another this great chorus of thanks. And that's what you're called into, even now. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do pray your blessing over Harrisburg. God, we pray for this city that has uh, seen so many ups and downs. And Lord, we pray that you would guide this city. And that many people would turn and worship you and give you thanks uh, as they gather together with friends and family this next week. As they were commanded to by our president long ago. Lord, we pray um, that now you would move in us, that we would be a people of thanksgiving, a community of thanks and praise, uh, made up of all of the, the the normal people, us who've gathered together in your name, Lord. God, teach us these things, now form in us uh, this kind of community that you were uh, shaping long ago, a community of the word, a community of confession and and dedication, and a community of thanks and praise. Hear our prayers, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.